Hey, young world, the world is yours. What's up? This is your man, Nutter Butter, and you are in the mix with my man Derek of Reviews and Duns. Exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews, exclusive interviews of your favorite RB and hip hop artists, producers, and songwriters. Stay tuned, you dig. What's up, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. My guest today, you might know from his appearance in the legendary miniseries, The Temptations, which first aired back in 1998 when I was a junior in high school, and I've since seen it many times. I mean, even my son knows the, ain't nobody coming to you, Otis Line, so I'm very (laughs) excited to welcome Mr. Teron Brooks to the line, and folks, Mr. Brooks is much more than his appearance in the Temptations. I mean, this brother's into life coaching and Broadway. He has CDs out, so you know, be prepared to learn all about the wonderfulness and the coolness of Mr. Teron Brooks. Welcome to the line, brother, and thank you for taking time out of your schedule to chop it up with me. Man, my doing? pleasure. I'm doing all right. It's giving me a break from everything that's going on. You know, you know, outside of this conversation, there's a lot going on. So it's a good break to to talk to you and, you know, talk to your listeners. So I appreciate you having me. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, it's just, um, you know, being a father, it's like every day, you know, it seems like you got to tell my my son, you know, there was another one. You know, you keep asking yourself, like, you know, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? And it's just. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with, and you know, I always tell folks I'm an Air Force veteran, and wow, I'm more afraid now what's going on in this country than I ever was. You know, serving my country when I went to the desert, you know, for Operation Iraqi Freedom. So, yeah, yes, sir. Yep. Trying times right now. It's it's tough being a black man right now in America. It, it definitely is, and but I I say to all. Anybody, not just black men or black women or black people, I think the best thing you could do is get it out, you know, talk about it, find some people that love you and you can trust and to tell the truth about your feelings because every every human is doing the best that they can. But the worst thing you can do is deny your feelings in hopes so you can feel better, you know, and I've done that a lot in my life because I, cause I know the right thing. I know what I'm supposed to feel. I'll actually push down what I really feel so I can try to do the right thing. And at this particular moment, there's things that you just feel that's honestly uh, right at the surface. It's better to let those things out. And in, that includes anger, you know, uh, because it's not about a pretty picture of perfection. It's just uh, how, how you feel actually today, you know, so. No doubt. So let's get right into it, man. Like I said, folks, this brother right here, man, I just I had no idea how impressive this gentleman's resume was. I mean, Broadway, the life coach and the, working with the king of pop, Michael Jackson. I mean, it goes on and on. So, you know, I'm not going to hype this brother up too much longer, you know, because I want to hear his story. So, <laughs> yeah, I understand he started singing at the age of six while growing up in Southern California. So outside of, um, you know, the norms, who were some of those early influences that played a part in Mr. Teron Brooks's influence to become a singer? Well, it's funny, man, because, you know, I, like you said, been singing since I was six years old, but there was really no ambition for me to do what I'm doing right now at that young age. It wasn't just like I was a singer and I couldn't wait to, you know, you know, be famous or be a singer or make a career out of it. It was just, you go sing at church (laughs) and you got a talent, let's hear it, you know, kind of thing. And so I'll be honest, my early influences were just gospel music. It's pretty much all we kind of listened to. So, you know, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Winans, you know, or Andre Crouch, Clark Sisters, Fred Hammond, Commission. Those gospel groups initially were the, they were the superstars in my household, you know. And then we got to, you know, the Sam Cooks or the Stevie Wonders um, later in life, the Luther Vandross, the Michael Jackson, the Babyface, James Taylor. I mean, the list goes on and on. But initially, it is that gospel music that I heard. And, and funny, I didn't think I was missing anything. I didn't hear a lot of popular songs, you know, uh, on the radio or anything. And it wasn't, I mean, my parents listened to the Temptations and Stylistics and, the, you know, Dramatics, the old, you know, oldies, but goodies. But it was those gospel greats that I was like, wow, I want to, I want to sing like that. You know, the whinings heavily. I think everybody listened to the whinings, even if it's influenced the music 
to R&B music now. So singing in the choir, man, I got to ask, because, you know, I can't sing at all, but growing up, you know, Mom Dukes had me in the choir, and I used to just get so agitated when I had to, you know, sing and stay for the next program and go to another service. What's the longest you can recall having to sing at church when you were a kid? Like, as long as you were ever in church for one day. I would say... I, I'm trying to narrow it down to hours, but we would have a morning service <laughs> that went on three hours and we would get something to eat real fast. And then we have like a three o'clock service, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then we would have a night service. So, you would, you know, and sometimes we would go to another church to sing. So after our first service, we get in the car, eat real fast, go to another service to just after that, eat again or something to come back to our night service and then to be ready for school the next day. So on a Sunday, it could be stacked. And then there was Wednesday night service or, you know, other events during the week. We, we were church kids. We were there, you know. And, and, you know, for the occasional boredom, it was kind of fun sometimes, you know. It was long. It, it was unnecessarily long. <laughs> but there was a culture there of people, and there was kind of fun, especially because music was so uh, important uh, to me at the time. And that's where I found it. You know, I wasn't really doing anything musically other than church. So that was like my outlet per se. But to answer your question, yeah, it could be a full, full day, man. Church. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't knock it at all. I mean, it was just, you know, and I think it's something that every kid, you know, especially, you know, in black households, you know, we go through is being yeah. in church all day. And if you even think about complaining, like, oh, no, you know, no. my mom just giving that that evil look like, don't even oh, say no. anything. If I'm here, you can be here. No, 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 no. My dad was a minister, so you, you know, we had, we were, you know, on our trying to be on our best behavior, you know, and we knew that if we weren't, it wasn't just our family that was going to be paying attention. The whole church knew who you was, you know, and uh, so yeah, that that informed a lot, you know, about who I am even today, you know, a lot good and some things I had to alter, you know, because I think. When you're made to go to church, you go because you are forced to. What happens when you're not, you know, and you have your own choice? And what, what are the things that actually you held on to and you want to continue? And then the, oh, what are the things that you're not going to do? Or, you know, and that's kind of my evolution. I had to decide for myself, hey, what is, what is, what do I think of this? Not what they think, you know? So going up in the church, what's your favorite Bible story? I myself, I was always partial to the story of um, Job. And I always said, if I ever, um, pursue filmmaking from a full standpoint, I would love to tell the story of Job as a hip-hop gospel musical. So what was your favorite <laughs> Bible love story? Love it, love it. Uh, well, I think I have two. One, I actually did a film. Joseph, I love that story so much. And I actually did a film called Half Faith a couple years ago where I was a modern-day Job. And some of the things that happened to Job kind of happened to this character called Half, Half, uh, Hamilton A. Vaughn, have, A-H-A-V. So I, I love that story. And I also just can't get away from David, man. How bad was David to kill Goliath? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that story, you know, kind of sticks with me even to this day. It's like with faith, you know, with those five smooth stones, you know, he knocked out such a, such an a, po- a mountain of an opponent, you know? And so that kind of fuels me a little bit with that kind of faith that it wasn't just the stones or the weapon. It was the fact that he had the audacity to say that he could do it in, in God's name, you know? So I think those are the two stories that I, I mean, there's many of them, but I'm like, I want to be David. <laughs> I totally respect that. And there's so many stories in the Bible that you can adapt from a film. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite film genres outside of musicals is I love faith-based films yep. because I get so much out of them and I don't see it as, from a bad filmmaking standpoint, you know, I just see it as a story being told that you can relate to no matter what your, um, you know, your faith is like, I love the stuff the Kendrick brothers do, you know, courageous, fireproof, yep, yep. more room. And it's just a matter of really just breaking the story down and in hindsight, making it appeal to a wide audience. So you don't necessarily have to have a overly biblically driven music because the story of David and Goliath can easily be like, the story of Rocky, you know, a smaller guy. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Taking on on a huge guy. So it's so many ways to tell, you know, biblical stories for the audience. 
So sticking yeah. with Hollywood thing, sticking with acting, what was the audition process for you like getting Eddie Kendricks in the Temptations miniseries? It was, I had about eight or nine auditions before I got the role. So it was something that I actually had to endure, you know, but I think initially me not thinking that it was possible helped me. <laughs> so I just kind of went through the motions like, ah, oh, you know, every black person is here to get these roles and this is never going to happen for me, you know? So let me just go have fun and do what I do and, you know, and get ready to watch it, you know? And so every time I went, I initially, which is everyone probably knows if you're a fan of the whole thing, but I auditioned for Paul first before I got Eddie Kendricks. So that was the first call and I auditioned for Paul and then Suzanne DePass, who is Barry Gordy's right-hand person, knows the Temptations in and out, and she's one of the executive producers of the film, saw my audition for Paul, and she instantly, like, stopped and was like, no, you're Eddie Kendricks, you know? And so that was basically my experience, having someone know Eddie Kendricks and say, no, that's who you are because I know this person, is how the ball started to roll. So, and then once I received the role, I still had to convince NBC that, you know, because I was a no-name, I had no credits, bro. Like, I, it wasn't like I was doing all this. I had some things I had done, you know, some acting work, small, but nothing to say that we're going to put all of our investment in you to be the star, one of the stars in this miniseries. Nothing like that. So it's definitely a chance that the casting and the directors and the network took on me. And I say this with no arrogance. I'm glad that they took a chance on some names that you have not seen before so we could actually bring these stories to life and instead of you having to look through the, the lens of a superstar to get to another superstar. You know? Aside from the case of Leon, who did an incredible job, and he was known for playing those different characters, and, and I don't see anybody else who could have played David Ruffin but Leon. But yeah, man, it was like, put on a suit, go down there, sing a couple songs, and you're now you're the star of this thing. You know, It happened really, really fast. And, but being a performer helped because a lot of the film was me actually getting the role and then having to audition to sing. So about 90% of the, the movie is me singing um, as well. So, but I think uh, in hindsight, it was good that I didn't think that I had a chance <laughs> because I just kind of swung at the fences and said, oh, we'll see. And, and it was a total dream come true with meeting Diana Ross and Smokey Robinson and many people that actually knew Eddie Kendrick's to give me that the history, the education, but also to say, you know, good job. I, I, I see him in you. Yeah. And that was a launch for me for my career, even though I've gone through ups and downs since that moment. But it, I always remember that, hey, God can do anything. You know what I mean? If he can, if he can find me and, and, and pick me out from, from where I was and what I had and give me this opportunity, then I've always held on to that experience to inform my experiences when I'm in like, you know, places where I don't know what's going to be next or I don't feel seen or what's going to happen. I go, remember that time when you were nobody <laughs> and you got picked out to do one of the most, you know, honorable things, you know, even to this day, people still watch that, that film. So it was like a, you know, seven or eight audition process even to begin to get the part. That's very interesting that you said you had really initially auditioned for Paul. And thinking back, you know, just based on your vocal, it would have been interesting to see you pull off Paul, you know, because you have that natural, like, falsetto and that tenor. So Paul had that more of a, I guess to me, a bartonic voice. So it would have been interesting to see you playing Paul. That's some trivia for me. Yeah, I mean, he, he has that distinct, Eddie had, of course, Eddie had the, the most distinct voice with his falsetto, but Paul had that rasp, you know. But what most people don't know about me is that when they saw Eddie Kendrick, they thought that was me, and that was just a small facet of my voice. I don't go around singing falsetto all the time myself, you know. So that was very interesting for me as a real singer for people just to say, well, that's all that I do. And then when they hear my music or my songs or be seeing some other artist, most people are surprised that Eddie Kendricks was a character and was a just a facet of what my voice can do. And thank God that I have that facility to be able to do that falsetto, but it wasn't everything. I think they got it right, you know, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I think I probably could have been Paul too, you know. It was just been something different 
that people would have been uh, experiencing at the time, you know. Um, but I'm a trained singer, you know what I mean? Um, like you mentioned, I've been in a couple of Broadway shows. I've been singing for a long, long, long time. So it wasn't just like that it was just one small part of the falsetto that makes Tehran's voice what it is. It's actually very, very different, even though it has some similarities, if, if that makes sense. So what was the um, research process like for Eddie? Did you meet with his family or just talk to Smokey, Mr. Pass? Well, there's a book that Otis wrote that definitely I read, and that's basically where the script comes from, because we all know that, that Otis is the only surviving member of the original Temptation. So his story is semi-paramount because he's the one that's alive. you know. So that was my basis. The script was my basis. And then talking, we got to talk to Otis briefly and Suzanne DePass and anybody on the set. Most of the people that were on the set or producers knew the temptation. So we can find out firsthand. A lot of clips, bro. You know, watching a lot of videos of Eddie Kendricks and how he performed and his mannerisms. I always say that I didn't set out to do an imitation of Eddie Kendricks. I set out to do an embodiment. And so I wanted to find out what his character was inside, who was the man, what he believed, what he stood for. And then that was going to inform my character of how I was going to portray him as opposed to I was going to try to talk like him or, you know, act like him per se. And I think I had some of those natural qualities already, which I always tell to young actors or anybody, you know, you're going in and you're going to play another character, but don't leave you outside of the room. Make sure you're bringing yourself what, what you have that's unique and special to you is actually going to enhance that experience of what the casting people might be looking for, as opposed to you trying to be somebody else and make that disappear. So I had to bring a lot of myself to the role you know, to answer your question. And then I would look and see what are those mannerisms that Eddie, you know, had. And, but basically, who was he? What did he believe in? And, you know, from the film, you know, he believed in brotherhood. He believed in the truth. He stood by Paul, you know, ride or die with him. He had a certain integrity about him, an honesty about him. And uh, I think I have that in my real life, too. So it was not hard to portray the, the, the guy. You know, we got to get into the music in the movie. Now, you're probably, I'd say your signature scene, My Little Guy's signature scene for you was when you do Just My Imagination. But my mm. performance in the movie is when you and Leon sing all right, give me a minute. You're my everything. The scene where ah. um, up on stage, and you killed that yeah. joint. The Temps got songs for days, as we all know. So was there a particular song from their catalog you wish would have made its way into the film? I can't think of one, man, because the film was, uh, you know, a snapshot of so many songs that, that actually people loved. And, and one thing about our director, it wasn't like we sang a song and did a, did a scene, sang a song, did a scene. He, he tried to put the music into the script and into the story to move the story along, which is the default maybe of some of the miniseries that maybe you've seen where it's just a song, you know, some dialogue. He wanted to make sure that the dialogue and the singing moved the story. What, what happens next in the song? When we're saying losing you, right? We're losing David Ruffin, you know, the, the group is falling apart. So it's poignant in the lyric content. So I can't think, I know what you're asking, but I can't think of any other song that maybe would have added to the uh, story. And that would, you know, other than the song I sang in my audition song was Don't Look Back. And that was a song of Paul. I'd love to hear more Paul sing than we got to in the movie. But I, I no, man, I can't think of another song that I would have, that's missing, you know, for that experience for, for the audience per se. And I have to be honest, it wasn't like I grew up on the temptations like everyone did, but it wasn't like I knew every single song, you know, it wasn't that, that much of a fan thing for me. I, I, I admired them as we all did, but I didn't really like know every single tune. It was interesting to play Eddie because, you know, Eddie left the group and had a solo career. So, you know, he had that Keep On Trucking song and many other songs by himself. So did David Ruffin. And that was fun to, to explore, too. I have to also mention that I was only 23 when I got hired. And I had to play from 17 to the time that Eddie died as a 23-year-old, you know. So it was a big range for me, especially for it being my first, you know, big thing. So it was a big, big challenge. But, yeah, I don't think I, don't think I can think of a song that, that wasn't in there. That's fair, and like I said, you know, they got songs for days, and you know, I'm a fan. Oh yeah, 
not a diehard fan, but I'm a fan. And even when I saw the Broadway musical, I took the family to see that in 2018. Yeah. There were so yep. many songs that I had no idea they sang because their catalog is just massive for um, yeah for days. Back in the day, they would they put albums out, man. <laughs> you know, now yeah. it's, you know it's different. It's a different age right now with with resources and money and you know an album would have. 10 cuts and all the cuts would be hits, you know, and now you have an album and it might just be one song, you know, that, that, that everybody heard unless you're a diehard fan, you know? You could even just do the stuff they did with Ruffin and Kendricks and Paul era. They can, they can tour out that era alone and not even go on the stuff they did with Norman Whitfield and the stuff they did in the yep. 80s and yep. that's, yep. you know, that's the venue out. So shout out to the Temptations yep. for being legends in the music game. All right, so after this miniseries, you know, you're still moving. I think the next time I saw you on the screen was the highly underrated All About You from director Christine Swanson, who just did the Clark Sisters biopic, which was also very well done. That film gave you a chance to work with the legendary Debbie Allen and a future Broadway star and the immensely talented Renee Elise Goldsberry. So how was your experience with that, that singing again and working with all that talent? and a positive love story. Man, that was a dream come true for an actor like me because I actually search out projects that actually uplift black people. It's something that I am very passionate about. And really when people ask me, where you been or what you haven't done or this or this or that, it's halfway because I really search out those special things that really elevate us, show us in a, in, in, in a beautiful light. And when I auditioned for All About You, I actually was going to be going to New York to do my first Broadway show, which is Jesus Christ Superstar. So I actually had a job. And what people may or may not know that Renee and I are like brother and sister. <laughs> we're very, we were very close at the time. And so they were looking for like an Eric Benet or a Brian McKnight type of person for, for Brian, the role that I played, uh, actual singer star, you know? And, yes. you know, I auditioned, Renee re recommended me and I auditioned. And the story goes is that after my initial audition, I was doing gigs in Los Angeles and Renee was singing background for me <laughs> in, in, in most of my gigs. And so they wanted to come see Renee, you know, and invertedly see me. But <laughs> So they came to a gig and I was singing and Renee was singing with me, which, you know, happens in the film. And the filmmaker and the producer, Christine and Michael, they just saw it. You know, and it's a, it's an extraordinary story. They saw it and they're like, I, I know no one knows who Toronto is <laughs> per se, but that chemistry that we, me and Renee had naturally, they took a chance on man. And I, I, I left the Broadway. I didn't, I didn't go to Broadway. And I said, you know, that might happen again. And the legendary Ricky Minor was the executive music producer of the, of the movie. And so I was like, I want to work with Ricky Minor, who's worked with, you know, Whitney and everybody. And you know, as an African-American actor, man, you know that those are few, you know? And so I said, you know, I think Broadway's going to be there, but this is an opportunity for me to do another film with great people, with a great script and great musical um, backbone and people. And so I, I, I love the opportunity. But I, I always thank Christine and Michael for looking to me as an up-and-coming person as opposed to always just going with what you know, the star, you know, or people that there's something that everyone else knows. So it was a great experience, man. It was a lot of fun, challenging and, and like the Temptations, maybe not as as popular. It's it's cultish in its way that it's really touched people. You know, it's made love look real for people in a different way, giving hope to actual people who are looking for a specific kind of thing that's not always shown on screen, you know, because the black experience is diverse. It's not just one thing. You know, it doesn't just look like one thing. And we're still we're getting there. We're getting there. But we're still having that struggle with just presenting one story or one type of thing. So I applaud them for doing something clean, you know wholesome but meaningful and you know not corny you know but um to give people hope man so that was a great experience and then you know i'm, I'm talking a long time but with the initially the songs were written already and we lost our not not we didn't lose ricky minor but we lost one of the writers and renee and i got to write most of the songs you hear on the soundtrack so that was like another bonus that we didn't even know that was going to be part of it to star in a movie Sing in a movie and sing your own songs, man. I mean, it was a really great, 
great thing. We just celebrated 20 years <laughs> of that. So it's been a while. Where does the time go? I don't yeah, so know. If you, guys <laughs> you guys haven't seen All About Us, check it out. I'm sure it's on streaming platform or even take it old school and buy the DVD. It's a very positive black love story that anyone can relate to. It's just a beautiful, positive movie, nothing negative, just two people in love who happen to be singers. So check that out. And once again, yeah, shout and out Amazon, to, you can get it Amazon. Amazon, you can get that on Amazon.com. And you can also get the soundtrack on iTunes now. It just came out on iTunes. So. All right, so you mentioned Broadway, and I know that you did Simba and The Lion King and Seaweed Stubbs and Hairspray. And I'm going to give you a little yeah. quick little factor. I'm probably the only person on the face of the earth that does not like the Lion King movie. I didn't like the animated <laughs> one when I was a kid, and I didn't like the remake. But uh -huh. the Broadway play is dope, though. I mean, I, I'll give it up for the Broadway play, but the, the movies, though, now nah, they can have that. I've never been a fan, and I, I even tried watching it with my son when he was about four or five, and I still couldn't get into the Lion King. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, I just, I've never cared for the Lion King movies. I don't know what it is. Well, I, I don't know if I agree with you, man, but I do understand what you mean. And I actually feel bad for the people that have not seen the Broadway musical thinking that it's the movie because it, it isn't. Broadway musical exactly. is a spiritual adventure of art. You know, and when I tell people about Broadway and it's expensive, you know, and it's like I always say, if you're going to see one show, take your kids to The Lion King because there's so much. It's different. It's not the cartoon. You know, they move beyond the cartoon to do something, I think, spiritual, historical, uh, stunningly beautiful with art, you know. And so I feel you, man. I think that that. Those two things are very, very different. And if you don't know, if you haven't heard it or seen it, you might think, oh, I don't need to see the play. It's going to be, it's going to be like this. It's, it's not at all. You know, Julie Taymor had a beautiful uh, vision and uh, label M from South Africa with the music and how that comes to life, man. And those first few seconds, you're blown away in the theatrical experience. So I was very proud to be in it, but I know exactly what you mean. You know, as far as the, the I didn't love the, the newest one at all. I was like, what's the point of the, the newest one? <laughs> so what about Hairspray playing seaweed stubs? Hairspray was amazing. Hairspray was probably to date my favorite, one of my favorite because of not just what happened on stage, but what happened be off stage with the management and the team of people. It was an incredible team of people. And I think the best jobs are the ones that you have so much fun on stage and the, the rewarding of the show that you're doing, but also the people that you're working with. And again, we just had a reunion of sorts with, with Hairspray on Zoom because that's what everyone's doing now. And, and you still, all those emotions about how we were when we were younger came up again doing such a show about racism with a little girl, a little white girl who's trying to change the world, you know, if anybody's seen the show. So... I was really happy to do that show. And, you know, a little history about me. I'm I'm not a dancer. I'm more of a mover. And it's been challenging in my career to accept that most of the things I've had to do, I've had to dance. And Hairspray, Seaweed J. Stubbs, is supposed to be the, the best dancer of, of, of them all, you know. So you talk about acting. I really had to work hard in, in that respect to pull that off. And uh, it was a great memory, man. You know, being on Broadway, I tell people it's a dream that I'd never had. It wasn't like I was sitting here going, oh, I can't wait to go to Broadway. I never thought about that. I just wanted to win a Grammy, you know, get a record deal, which I still haven't done. And then being able to open myself up and be available to what's in front of me and, and leverage what the experience is in front of me has opened up a whole new world for me. And I always tell people, be open. You know, you can have a plan, you can have a goal, but be open. Use all of your experiences and all your gifts to take you where you might not think you would go. It's, it's actually been the acting that I have done more of to actually enhance and, and inform what I really love, is, which is the music. But I just got married, and then I got hairspray and went on the road for a year, man. Cool, yeah. And I totally agree with Broadway. I mean, going to see the theater and even seeing stuff off-Broadway plays are so much fun to see. I really think it's a testament to anyone's acting style if they can pull off theater. And it's, it's not a shot at film actors or television actors, but theater's mm -hmm. a totally different ball game. Even I, I can even yeah. recall being... Middle school, you know, taking theater arts when we did a Midsummer's Night Dream and uh -huh. I missed their cue and I had to come up with something to, you know, <laughs> to, I just started beating on the table. I was playing the uh -huh. drums and it's stuff like that. You got to be quick on your feet when you're doing theater because there's no cut. 
there's no cut. There's like, he's still there. <laughs> Let's get into your music, brother. So 2014, you dropped that debut album, Contagious. One of my favorite songs from that project was Comfort in, Comfort in Your Plan. What was the motivation behind that song? Man, that was with my friend Vaughn and producer Vaughn Thompson Jr. And literally, we're on his couch. And literally, the beginning of that song goes, it's not what I thought it was. We were just having a conversation. And the conversation actually became a song. The song's about six or seven minutes. It's actually a conversation, you know, and it's very relevant to what we're going through right now. In the fact of the song's motivation is that I don't know everything, you know, I don't know much. But if you have the faith in God who knows everything, right, there's comfort in what you don't know because someone else knows. So that's kind of basically what it is. And the song is beautiful. It's just me and the piano. And it literally is that conversation with kind of struggling with your expectations and where you are in life. And it's not what you think it's going to be. And you don't know the future. You don't know the way. But you're comforted, you know, by someone who does, you know. And incidentally, that song, I've sang that song at funerals for people. I have heard that people took their last breath to the song, actually played the song and transitioned uh, in their life. I've gotten letters from people that said that song has really meant something to them more deeply than I could ever imagine when I wrote it. So I'm really glad that you, that was one of the ones you, you know, spoke to you. Yeah, well, thank you for doing, for doing the song. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I really love about your music is you're not trying to keep up with current R&B trends. You're just, you know, this is my instrument. This is my God-given talent. This is what I'm going to sing. So from a talent singer standpoint, I have to ask you, what, what do you think modern R&B is missing from, say, 20, 30 years ago when we were coming up and it was just such a refreshing time listening to R&B, turn the radio on and just hear love songs and bridges mm-hmm. and riffs, amazing production. Mm-hmm. And to caveat what you said earlier, you could actually go out and buy an album and the entire album Mm-hmm. Would hit. So, mm-hmm. what do you think is missing in 2020? Well, I think you know, and this again, my statements are my own personal, you know, thoughts, not necessarily to knock knock anybody else. But I think some of the authenticity is gone when you are trying to be successful. You know, when you're trying to get a hit, you know, and you're trying to listen to whatever's out there, whatever's current, you might not do what you actually feel in your soul. And that's what soul music is. It's not doesn't necessarily need to be black or white. It's what do you feel in your soul and what you feel in your soul becomes popular. It might not be popular at the moment. And so I think what's missing is some authenticity because now all R&B singers want to be pop, you know, and, and that's fine, you know, because, and I get it because if they're not pop, they're not heard, you know, um, John Legend is not R&B. Uh, uh, Alicia Keys is not R&B. They are, they, they have the sound, but it's crossed over and that's not a bad thing, you know, because the more people, the better. But our niche of R&B music, of what it used to be, is expanded, and it's just and, and, and the, the approach to go into it, I think, is different. And that's why, I mean, I'm not signed to a major label, and so what you're hearing is just me going, I want to do this, because I'm independent. <laughs> I don't have people telling me what to do. It's not based on sales or anything like that or expectations. It's just like, I wrote the song, this is how it goes, you know? especially for the Contagious record where I have a myriad of styles because I love everything. I love country music. So I put anything out that sounds whatever. What makes it me is me, is my soul, is my experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be a genre kind of kind of thing. So that's kind of my feeling about what where music is kind of right now, R&B music, is that back in the day, they were like, you are everything. It was the simplest <laughs> song you know, authentic to whatever the, what the time was and not necessarily, it wasn't even perfect sometimes. Right, man. <laughs> you know, so, but the heart, the heart was there and now it just seems to be a little bit like diluted and corrupted a little bit. And I, and I think that's part of culture too, that I very am sad about. Why is it that the R and B singers can't be a number one, you know, uh, against the pop world, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but there are other reasons why it's just kind of dying. You know? Yeah, and I totally agree. And again, it's it's not a shot at pop singers or you know anybody doing popular music. Mm-hmm. I mean, no. A few years pop ago, <laughs> Neil brought up a good point, and Neil pretty much said the reason why he started doing Euro pop and doing stuff he was doing is that's what was selling. 
and that's yep. who was buying his yep. music. So for me, when I talk to, you know, artists and I, I talk to other mature bloggers like my homies, Kyle and Tom over, you know, I got soul.com or I talk to my man, yep. edit soulandstereo.com. Like we talk about this stuff and we pretty much say, why is it that a singer like right now, the temps can do a new album and they can say, you know what? We got stuff from Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on here. We got stuff from uh-huh. Babyface. You know, we have John Legend and Alicia Keys playing the piano on a couple of tracks. We have uh-huh. Roots doing a jam session on a track. Why is it that they'll get clowned by folks, but yet the Roman Stones can do something and not get clowned? Again, that's uh-huh. another conversation, but really think about that stuff and think about, we said we want R&B back, but you uh-huh. got to support it. And there's plenty yeah, of music out there that's real good. It's not out there. Yeah, yeah, and, so, and, and we're in, and we're trying to hold on to those icons as a as semi young person. <laughs> you know, we're we're trying to hold on to them because we're losing those. I love John Legend. Thing about John Legend that I do like is that when you buy a John Legend album, as pop as it could be, you're going to get some R and B on there. You know, and I think that is the conversation that you would have with some of those artists that say. I know what you're saying, Derek, but I got to do this, you know, mm-hmm. and to even keep it alive so people can even hear the other stuff. And I, I, hear, with, I hear that. You can call that selling out if you want to. I, I don't know if that's selling out. That's just also the reality of the business. But so I would hope same thing with my music. Maybe I put something out that's pop or whatever, and then you, just to get you to like it or listen and then maybe you buy the whole record and you get comfort in your plan on there, you know? So, you know, I don't know if there's a right or right, right or wrong answer, but I do know that it is sad that that's what we have to talk about and that, that there's a decline in such a beautiful art form with music, you know? Whatever the answer is, I, I think music is leaning toward independent right now anyway. There's not, a lot of people are doing stuff and being heard with the platforms we have with no record deal, you know, no major backing behind them they're just doing it and that's very promising for artists like me you know in 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 today's climate so last year you dropped something new the soul of broadway and you know i gotta admit the first thing i saw let me buy it was just my imagination but you change up the arrangement so that kind of you know piggybacks on what you were just saying about you know the sound and everything but but how you did it though it still sounded fresh and you didn't go too far left away from from the original arrangements. What can you tell the listeners about that newest release, The Soul of Broadway? Man, I, I'm excited about The Soul of Broadway. It's basically for people who say, I hate Broadway. <laughs> you know, I ain't never going to go to a Broadway show. Broadway's corny, you know, this or this or that. One thing that I do love to do, aside from songwriting, is reimagine. I love reimagining any song, even if it's a, a cover song. I'm always going to do it in my own way. The concept about Soul of Broadway is taking songs from these Broadway shows and bringing them to a authentic, personal place outside of the, the musical, right? And saying, hey, if you heard this song, not sung by the little white girl with uh, curly uh, red hair, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, from the show, if you just heard The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow in another kind of way with that lyric, right? How would that hit you? How would that touch you and how would that bring you to a current place or a new place that maybe affected you when you couldn't hear it before so that's what we did we took uh 10 major songs fortunately for me that the temptation musical just came out so i could include that on the record which all my fans you know were asking me to do because there is no soundtrack for the temptations miniseries which is a whole other story but we reimagined that a little bit too just to make it you know something of an offering for me instead of me just re producing Eddie Kendricks again. So that's the record, man. It's just a fresh take, a personal take. And we also have a tour, a show, a concert experience of me telling the audience kind of what I went through in my life, how I met my wife and my family, what I went through from my different experiences. And then we weave these songs and and uh, it's a it's a kind of a magical, unique experience that we hope we have more than more volumes, and we hope uh, people cover the songs and bring theater to people who normally wouldn't listen. Is what we we tried to do. Yeah, well, man, the fact that you brought some soul to the impossible dream—that's a song. <laughs> man. No, you know, no, no. See, because that's a song I think that's hard for any singer to sing, and you really have to really have vocal chops to pull off that the impossible dream. So. Shout out to you, Mr. Brooks, for pulling off the impossible dream because... Man, I, I tell you, that's... 
<laughs> I t- some of those songs I didn't like. I was like, oh, I don't like that song, you know? And so I said, but let me think if I sang it and if I interpreted it, then once I kind of stripped them down, uh, man, I really could like find the lyric and go, this is inspirational. This is amazing. How would I approach this song? So there's a few of them on the record that started out with uh, like, I don't like this song, <laughs> you know? And that was actually one of them, you know, that, cause you hear it in a musical theater context, right? Every time somebody is singing it, they're singing it in that heavy vibrato and, and being a character. And I was like, let me take that off. And what are these lyrics saying, man? So uh, I appreciate the compliment, but I just wanted to reveal some of those songs I personally didn't like. <laughs> so sticking with the dream thing, what was your inspiration behind becoming a life coach? Man, you know, the older I get, the more I want to work on things that are organic and easy. You know, other than acting, which you're playing a whole another character, I'm trying to just work, do things that are more of an extension of who I really am. So when I go on stage and do a Toronto concert, it's me. You know, I put some clothes on, I go out there, I talk to the audience, sing the songs. It's work, you know what I mean, with the discipline of what I have to perform and do. But it, with the joy of it all is like, I'm not trying to make you like me. I'm not trying to alter my character to make you think who I am or this image. It's just me. So life coaching is something I already do on a daily basis with my friends and my family and anybody who's going through anything. I'm, I, I'm trying to be even a brand of inspiration anyway. So it, to answer your question... You know, I, if you want to say monetarily or making it like a living or a career or whatever, your ministry or whatever you say, it's just what what do you already do? You know, what do you do? What brings you joy naturally? You know, that's the goal. That's what that's the career. That's the life that I would like to live as I continue to you know move forward in this journey. What can I do that I do naturally? And, you know, I would do getting paid and I would do not getting paid. And life coaching is one of those things where, especially for me, I focus on the artist. I focus on people who are singers or painters or actors or whatever, who have invested everything in their craft and have left nothing for their life. And basically, I, you know, coach artists to really take a look at their own pie, their own life, not looking to the left or the right or the neighbor or what, and to help them to find success for themselves and to keep making sure that they can find a balance in that success. And nine out of 10, when we get down to the nitty gritty, you know, people are living great lives, but when they start looking over to the left or right, all of a sudden they're miserable of who they aren't and what they haven't done. And when I say, well, tell me your story, tell me your dream, it becomes a beautiful picture when they can just, you know, look at themselves. So I'm always motivational in that way, man. And I wrote a book. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an author now, and I'm going to write some more books. And just, you know, I am not an authority of anything. I'm only the authority of my life. As someone who suffers from chronic anxiety and PTSD, it took me a while to seek out my own therapy and once I got therapy, it really helped me out a lot. Now, you know, initially, I mean, I heard the whole thing from some people, just pray about it, you'll be okay. You know, mental illness isn't a thing in the black community. Mm. You know, the usual stereotype, yada, yada, yada. So why do you think there's such a stigmata when it comes to black males and seeking out therapy? Well, I, I know personally I've had to seek therapy out for myself. You know, there's a lot of healing in my childhood that I had to recognize especially when I became a father. My son has autism. There's been challenges with just trying to uh, accept my reality in life. And I had a wonderful father. We're, we're best friends to this day. And I don't blame him per se for the things that he could not do or the facility that he couldn't or the, the, the things that he could not provide for me based on his life. But I think therapy, especially if you are a faith-based person, a believer or something where they say, like you said, just pray about it. You don't need to talk to anybody else. Uh, I think God gives us uh, an outlet in, in many kind of ways. He gives us medicine. He gives us therapy. He gives us, I mean, ultimately he is the ultimate healer, but black men, to answer your question, we don't like to talk about these things. These are uncomfortable. And there's a stigma that says that you're weak. You know, I think you're stronger by identifying what's weak about you <laughs> and actually trying to enhance those things and grow and having somebody. I, it's a myth that the therapist is going to tell you what to do and change your life. It's really a safe place to speak, to, 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 to vent, to process. And actually, I came up with so many epiphanies and revelations that was helped by my therapist, but was not dictated by her, you know? 
So I, I highly recommend that because sometimes you feel like you're in a situation in your marriage or your friends or your family where you really can't talk. Those people are too close. You might need an objective kind of person to put things in perspective and let you be free, right, to, to reveal with the hurts and the pains that you have with no judgment. And I think that's important, especially with what we're going through right now. Where are you going to process your anger? Where are you going to process your hurt, that eight-year-old hurt, that five-year-old hurt that stays with you, and now you're a 40-year-old man, but you're still operating like you're six, you know? So um, that is part of me wanting to coach. But I learned also that my coaching was, you know, I was a little limited by if I didn't grow myself, you know, if I didn't identify those things myself, I wouldn't be able to have a listening ear to my clients. I would be coming off as a preacher. You need to do this. You need to do this instead of really having that empathy, which we're lacking in our country right now because people can't even understand each other. So yeah, man, I think it's imperative. And you know, I didn't go for a long, long, long time, but talking to somebody and also some stuff was re was, was revealed to me. Some things I hidden so deep inside and I didn't even know they were stalling my growth. You know, I didn't know that I had this unforgiveness or this hurt that I needed to kind of attend to until a therapist asked me a certain question, you know, and I know it's hard, but eventually it's your life, you know, and you want to live your life on your own terms, not on the basis of what a stigma says or what somebody else says or what somebody else believes. You know, life should be led to the fullest. And I don't think you can live a full life without knowing who you are as full as you can. You know, totally agree. And I mean, even with therapy, sometimes I tell some of the some of the homeless, like, you know, my brothers, my friends who they call my brothers that sometimes something simple is just playing a song or, you know, calling somebody mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. vent, you know, in the desert back in 06. The only thing to really do besides write and go about and keep, you know, keep your sanity is listen to listen to music. So a mm-hmm. lot of times it would just be, you know, at my um, work location and I'd be playing a CD showing mm-hmm. my age. I'd be playing a CD, and I can remember playing <laughs> the New Edition Heartbreak album. That's like my favorite album of all wow. time. And I'd be playing it wow. in the computer speakers, and we'd have somebody come in, you know, to get equipment. They were going to the desert, and they might hear, you know, a song from that album. They'd say, wow, man, you took me back. And they would be smiling mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. put them in a good headspace before they're going off to fight. And it's just stuff like that. You never know what somebody's been through or what somebody's yep. going through. And the yep. littlest thing, a simple hello, a simple playing a song, a simple smile can go a long way. So Definitely. Thank you. For music, is, music is therapeutic. And it, 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 it is said that music has properties, even chemically, to heal. You know, so that's that's I'm glad that you can grab a hold on that. Something like you said, as simple as that can actually because it's nostalgic. It takes you back. It's an escape. You know, so before we close out, I got to talk about your experience with the Michaels. Tell me about that experience <laughs> working with the king of pop, Mr. Michael Jackson. Well, it, it, it's going to disappoint you because I was such a I was a kid. Basically, I did the Super Bowl with Michael Jackson. So it wasn't like. You know, I was up close and personal with him. <laughs> I was young. I was on the Super Bowl. It was like a lot of kids. But I can rewind or fast forward from that point of being a kid. I was almost signed to Michael Jackson's label years after, and I got to work with producers that worked with Michael. And so he is definitely a, a hero of mine, an inspiration. You can hear my music, and I know you have, and you hear a lot of Michael. <laughs> but I didn't actually really get to... Yeah, I would love to have met him and talked to him, but I didn't really get that opportunity when I worked with him with the Super Bowl. But lots of other experiences after that that I got to, you know, work on and almost signing with MJJ Records was an honor. And, and actually writing songs and producing songs with um, some of his producers were, was a highlight. But I have got, I've gotten to work with Smokey Robinson and Stevie Wonder and David Foster and uh, went on tour with Phil Collins. Yolanda Adams. I've sang with a lot of different people that mean different things to different people. But yeah, Michael, it still brings me sadness to think about his story, not just him as a star, man, but just him as a person. I still think about it and what he gave to us and what he what what the cost was actually, too. Yeah, definitely. And going into the other Michael, his royal airness, you know, during the pandemic, his last dance documentary proved to be quite popular. (laughs) <laughs> if there was a follow-up focusing on another player, basketball, football, just any sport, what would you like to see, you know, last dance, the sequel? 
Oh man, you know, unanimously it has to be Kobe Bryant. <laughs> I mean, I even was thinking that when I saw the thing. I just thought, did they make one for Kobe? Did they have footage? You know, what would he say? You know, so that I don't even have to think twice. Uh, it would be Kobe Bryant. I would love to see that. And incidentally, that movie, which I'm sure is going to win many awards, the best documentary or whatever, it was groundbreaking in unpacking a superhero, right? You know, uh, packing, unpacking his greatness and his humanity, him being a human, you know, and we don't get to see that a lot with these gods that we exalt, you know, so it's fascinating. I know I got to watch it again. I have a lot of questions still about it. I think it's very controversial. You know, I think it's very telling the price that I just mentioned with Michael, the price that you have to pay for greatness, you know, everybody might not like you and everybody not, might not agree. And the scrutiny it takes to be under that microphone, which we saw in that film, you know, how he had to walk away because it was so painful to be misunderstood, right? Is uh, I love to see a Kobe Bryant documentary in that kind of way, you know. Still hurts to this day. I mean, it's just. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. I mean, I'm still, still dealing with, you know, I'm not a diehard basketball fan, but for me, when Kobe passed away, like, I had a chance to see him play, had a chance to experience, you know, Kobe mania in the 90s, because I'm a 90s baby, born in the 80s, but, you know, raised in the 90s. And for me, when Kobe passed away, it hurt me more as, as a father yeah. than anything. Yeah. No one that, you know, yeah. Gigi was with him and the rest of his kids, and he was just doing so much, such a positive yeah. beacon life. That's really what hit me was like the father aspect, more so than his athleticism. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, rest in peace, yeah. Kobe. All right, folks. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing. The wisdom, the positivity, just the beautiful spirit of Mr. Teron Brooks in this trying time. I highly urge you guys to check out his music on all streaming platforms. It's positive. It's clean. It's um, just straightforward, God-given singing talent for our ears. So highly check out his brother's music. Check out his life coach services. Is there anything you'd like to add, brother? Like, where can fans find you on social media, where can they purchase your book at? You know, give us some of the... Yeah, uh, you, you can get my book on Amazon.com. It's called Something Good on the Table, and I'm on Facebook. I actually answer questions. I'm actually a presence on Facebook uh, a lot, so, you know, message yes, me you. Or, or get on there. And uh, Instagram, too, just my name, Teron Brooks, and then my website is teronbrooksmusic.com. If you're interested in coaching or anything like that or any other kind of services, motivational speaking, you can find me, but I, I love to connect, so try to make a point of it, especially in this time where we're all at home. <laughs> all right, folks, that was Mr. Teron Brooks, today's guest for the interview with Reviews Undone. And before we close, I'm going to leave you guys with a quote like I always do. Music and rhythm find their way into the secret places of the soul, Plato. Until the next time, stay inspired, stay blessed. Done out. Ever wanted to get inside the mind of the creators of all your favorite 90s R&B classics? Hey, I'm Mariah Carey. What's up, it's your boy Usher. Hey, what's up, it's your girl Brandy. Check out Reviews and Done.